Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Day Beautiful. I'm Adam Vitkavich, and this is a podcast where I interview a debut author about their reading and writing history, what inspires them, their debut book from Genesis to editing it, and from querying agents to finally selling it. If you like what you hear here, check us out on daybeautiful.net and follow us on social media at daybeautiful. Today's guest is a queer Latinx poet, writer, and educator who draws on his family's immigrant history and his own third culture upbringing. He is the author of the poetry collection, At Least This I Know, and currently resides in Edinburgh, Scotland. His debut novel, How We Name the Stars, is out now in America. Please welcome Andres and Odorica. Andres, thanks so much for joining us. I just read your official bio, but I'm curious, what is your unofficial bio? Who is the person behind the writer? Oh, who am I? Um, it's always so funny to, yeah, think of about like beyond writing, I feel like as a writer, I am so entrenched in 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 my love of writing, of uh, prose and poetry. And so whenever I have to think about like what else do I do, um, I go to the gym. But like I grew up as someone very much um a- afraid of the gym. So like to say, oh, I'm like, oh, am I a gym bunny? No, not in any way. Uh, I like to go on runs. Um. I uh, have an obsession for coffee. I'm often at coffee shops. Is this who I am? I don't know. Uh, (laughs) A kind of aloof, gym-going, coffee addict, runner, um, and a voracious reader. And I think as a child, I was, yeah, I was someone equally in love with books. Uh, I did not do the gym at all. I was a theater nerd. <laughs> mm. um, I was uh, part of my high school journalism team. Um, so yeah, I'm one of those annoying writers whose like official bio is kind of pretty close to like their like personal bio and stuff. Yeah. I don't I don't have any hidden talents to speak of. <laughs> No, for sure. I'm going to ask a few questions based off of that. Um, what's your coffee order? I like a simple oat milk latte. I found out uh, uh, a little over a year ago that I'm lactose intolerant. Um, and so that kind of changed my relationship to coffee. Mm-hmm. I now appreciate if people don't have oat milk or even soya, I like a good black coffee, which yeah. is like I didn't like when I was younger. Um, when I, this sounds really knobby, I live in Scotland. So whenever mm-hmm. I'm in continental Europe, I love an espresso. An mm-hmm. espresso post meal, like the Europeans know what they're doing. Like I want, like before the digestif. Bef- mm-hmm. uh, after the dessert, an espresso. So it depends on the time of the day. Definitely. I am a big fan of black coffee. I think it's just mostly because I'm lazy. It's like yeah. I do the French press and that's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And then I don't want to add things to it. I'm just good. Yeah. I'm good to go. Um, we're not here to talk about coffee, but I would love to talk about it all day. We're here to talk about your uh, debut novel, How We Name the Stars. I'd love to hear what the book is from your perspective uh, cut through the publicity copy similar to like your unofficial bio what is the unofficial pitch for how we name the stars yeah so i describe it or when i get to describe it sort of aside from all of that official copy i think at its core it is a love story that is steeped in loss and so for me it is often sort of couched as a coming of age story which is truly totally fair it is that but i think it 
if we go down that route, then it really is about Daniel going through these two very universal rites of passage, both his first love and his first loss. But that through line of the book is um, his love for the character of Sam, who is uh, the person being told the story. So the book is written in, in second person, um, narrative. So we're speaking, the reader is reading the you of, of the story, that being Sam. Um, so yeah, I do. I think of it as a love story, but it's entrenched in loss. I think by the end, there is, I don't want to say happy ending, because that seems a bit trite, especially based on kind of at points how harrowing it is. But I think we sort of reach a semblance of a happy life for Daniel, but the reader knows pretty much from the get-go that it's not going to be a happy ending in the traditional sense of romance. Mm -hmm. Before we dive deeper into the book, I, I I think I have to start with this because it is of most interest to me recently is the idea of place. Your book takes place between Mexico and America. You live in Scotland. Did you write the book while abroad or were you back in a, where where were you while you were writing this? Because I, I want to like just focus on that first. Uh, I was here in Scotland, so I've I um, although there I, I assume is still a tinge of an American accent, or probably more specific a Californian accent. Um, I spent most of my life overseas. Okay. Uh, because of my father's career. Um, and so, yes, and, and by virtue of just having lived in the UK for quite a few years now, I went, when I started to pursue the novel, yes, it was written here. Um, and, but I, I love that you picked up on this idea of place because I think it very much is a novel that is written to place. And for me, that was sort of a means of unpacking memory and mm. kind of my own identity so you know it's based at a fictional college in Ithaca New York where I went to school for mm. my undergrad and Daniel is from a, a, a sort of made-up town in Northern California um, which I won't say what it's riffing off of because uh, I don't want to get in into any sort of arguments with Californians of if, if I portray this part of California injusticely. Um, and then yes, and then the second half of the novel takes place in um, Chihuahua, mm -hmm. uh, in the north of Mexico, um, where my mom, my mom's side of the family comes from originally. So it's a very much a novel that is steeped in place, but that was interestingly enough, written very far removed from either place. It was a, a way for you to connect with memories and, and 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 learn and dissect your identity was that something you knew you were writing about or did that come after you had thought about the universal loss and the universal love oh no a hundred percent the former like i am someone who is probably way too entrenched in identity um, and, and obsess over it. Um, so I had a, a poetry collection, mm -hmm. at least this I know that came out two years ago. Um, and that is a, very much written from the personal, some people describe it as like a memoir in poetic form. Mm -hmm. um, and I, as a writer, I'm just obsessed with this, the, the concept of identity or even the construct of identity and how identity is both found within oneself but also foisted upon um, oneself, especially when you are of um, 
uh, from a marginalized community group, be it uh, a racialized group, an ethnic uh, immigrant uh, group, or um, from the LGBTQIA plus community, and how this idea of the or these different identities often come with a lot of baggage and history and questions. And so for me, it was always going to be a novel that unpicked these very at times weighty subjects, but sort of, yeah, hearkening back to this idea. I hate, like, yeah, universality or authenticity or this or that. I think it's just that at this age that the character is, which is 18, 19, mm -hmm. you know, to try to make sense of oneself. And if you grow up in sort of a Western country, and, and so we in most Western countries, we say at 18, you're an adult. And often that means you, you either uh, go to university or you join the workforce. And it's just like this crazy sense of like how between, um, you know, 11.59 p.m. on the day you're 17 to 12 a.m. at midnight when you turn 18, is there really what is that transitory period where we kind of think, okay, you are able to just go out in the world and you have, you know, all of these opinions that you can immediately form and you should have a sense of self and actually how that is a very unwieldy thing. And so for me, that was sort of the genesis of the character. But for me, of course, it was always going to come with all of that other baggage because I was riffing off of myself in the creation of Daniel as a character. As someone who hasn't read your poetry collection yet, but I'm very interested and assume I haven't read your novel. I have, but assume I'm just a person on the street and, and I picked up both books. Is there a benefit to reading your poetry collection before the novel? Are they... Or if I read the novel and then the poetry collection, will, will I be more informed? Like, what is the ideal way to read both of your works? Or is there not one? Oh, I love this question. And I have an answer, not because anyone has asked me, but I went through a similar experience. Um, so I'm obsessed with the writer Sean Hewitt, uh, who has become a, a friend of mine. And I... Um, chaired him this past summer at the Edinburgh International Book Festival, having fallen in love with his memoir already and his poetry before. And so, anywho, read the memoir again in preparation of my uh, event with him, and then also wanted to include his poetry. So went back to his debut collection. And reading the poetry again after making my way through the memoir, it was amazing to see all of these, like, sort of, I wouldn't even say Easter eggs because he read, he had written one before the other. Mm -hmm. So for me, I would say if you were interested in sort of supporting all of the books that I have out or soon to have out, I would start with the novel and then go to the poetry collection if you've not come across my poetry first, only because I think it would be very interesting then to see, especially the second half of the book, how much I may have sort of taken from my own life. And I won't mm -hmm. say anything more beyond that. <laughs> so I accidentally did it right. So now. Yeah, go you. Yeah. Um, I want to start now on discussing how we name the stars, the the creative process, the time, like the nitty gritty timeline, why you started writing it. Um, so the, I, the simple question is the genesis. Where, where and why did this come out of you? Yeah, so I started writing, um, so 
Like many writers, this is not my first attempt at a novel. <laughs> I think this was my third attempt at a novel. Um, there was a previous version that had like mm, just uh, I wouldn't say any deep rooted connection. I would say they were kind of singing together. There was like a harmony. There was a version of a story that was more based on my mom's childhood. Mm-hmm. And and being from a family originally from Chihuahua, so that that kind of desire to write towards that place had happened in a previous attempt at, at at a novel, but the actual novel itself, it really came about in my, my final years of my twenties, as I was about to enter, you know, this very daunting age of thirty, and reflecting back on the past decade and thinking of how much sort of my late teens early 20s had shaped who i was but also maybe was actually just a totally divergent being to who i had been embodying at that point and continued to embody and so for me it was really there was this deep-seated interest to reflect on that sort of first year of of university and what it would it's yeah to to kind of think about a character who's at this very liminal stage and what that might avail to me in terms of character creation and so that was like this genesis i think of nostalgia and reflection which then kind of became very apparent in writing the novel because it is a novel based on reflection it's it's written sort of at the beginning of Daniel's sophomore year, reflecting on the past year and the recent loss of Sam. And so for me, yeah, but that was it from sort of first putting words on page for this attempt at a novel to the final product was almost six years mm-hmm. of work. Um, not always continuous. I think I really picked it back up after the pandemic started. I think, you know, I think for many creatives that, you know, you fall in, you have, you fell into two camps. You were either so um, crippled by anxiety, rightly so of what was going on and just had no time or headspace to be working on your craft. Or you were someone who relished it. And I was in a very privileged position that as someone who is kind of aloof and inherently shy, being, especially in Scotland, we were one of the countries in the world that had like the strictest lockdowns and the most progressive lockdowns. Um, I was just able to return to it and have something to dedicate myself uh, and occupy my time as the world was literally burning. I, I, I'll focus in on that time period just a little bit of, I mean, I, you, you answered it, but was it easy to write during that? Like do, a lot of people I have talked about just how it was an escape from the pandemic and others have talked about how their writing during that time changed a lot. What was your relationship once you left the real world and jumped into how we named the stars while writing during that time period? I think for me, it was a means of survival and kind of having some ability to move forward in life in in an actual real time moment where it felt like I had no agency to move forward. And I think also I was one of the people who really just um, 
I didn't think there was any end in sight. I was really, uh, you know, outside of writing, like uh, wrangling with a lot of anxiety and um, sort of depression. And I thought, oh my God, I may never see my family again. And so for me, the novel was like an escape in the sense that I could write to these two places that had like a deep impact on me. So, you know, the first half of the novel, wanting to sort of revisit um, this, the university chapter of my life. But the second half was really a means of connecting with my family and, and being able to kind of, uh, yeah, like press forward in a way. And then I think it was also, it was multi-layered in the sense that it was also a form of grief and mourning for me because my grandfather who inspires the character of Abuelo Ormar in the novel um, passed away at the beginning of 2021 from COVID. And so I think it was just like I, I had been deep in the trenches at that point redrafting the novel and it just became almost like an obsession that like I, I needed to reach the end of it. Like I needed to, to just to get through it and, and for it to feel like it wasn't for naught, if that makes sense. Because mm -hmm. um, yeah, at that point it was such a strange moment because there were parts of the world that were beginning to open up. And, 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 and um, yeah, I, but like, you know, in Scotland we still had like really strict lockdowns and, and, you know, my grandfather had made it through almost the majority of the first year of the pandemic and then just passed away and it just seemed so obscene because at that point, both in, in, in much of the West, you know, including the US, you know, they had, they had found the vaccine and it was like he had just missed out on it. And so for me, like it then just became this multi-layered thing of like, this was a novel always about grief. And then it just took on such a deeper meaning when I was now faced again with yet another sort of harrowing loss. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry to hear that happened. Yeah, that was a, a wild time for every everywhere it people were pretending like the pandemic was over and just going about normal lives and then certain countries were still on lockdown mask mandates and it just it what that period of the, like the pandemic specifically taught me is just how fickle people are mm. and to do whatever they want anyway you know it's their life a hundred percent uh in writing the novel through, you know, off and on picking it back up, when did the you come in? When did the format of Daniel's voice come into play? Oh, such a great question. So I was very fortunate that in a earlier draft, I got shortlisted for two really great awards here in the UK, um, specifically for uh, unpublished uh, writers of color. Mm -hmm. um, and in that version, I, as part of the mentorship scheme of being part of, of the shortlist in each, um, I was able to get some time either with agents or editors or publicists. And, and people, you know, gave me really great, kind, generous feedback and, and sort of... Um, the the quick summary of it was this is a very lyrical beautiful novel but the voice seems off right now and so 
you know, I had to like really kind of down tools and give myself time to think about like what is off with it. And like I realized that the, there needed to be a kind of deeper intimacy for the reader, for it to just not feel too saccharine or cerebral if it was just Daniel going through it in real time. And so I uh, was at a point where I'd kind of given up on the agent hunt and I knew that I was, I, I knew I had, I'd figured out like, this is what's going to happen. Um, I'm going to try the you voice. I want Daniel actually to have already gone through Sam's death. And then at that point, my agent um, uh, slid into my DMs and my uh, poetry uh, publishers had happened to send my agent Carl my uh, uh, an advanced copy of my poetry collection. They liked it. You know, they are a, a very inclusive new agency here in Scotland that has like a great list, especially particularly of queer people. Um, and so from the get-go, Carl got what I was doing, but it was a funny sort of uh, moment in time in that I had only gotten through the first three chapters of this new attempt at like the second person narrative device. So I said to Carl, you know, I'll, I'll send you the three chapters, um, but uh, I'm not going to let you read the previous version. So, you know, you can, if you want to, you can sign me on that, but then I would only be willing to send you the redraft as I get through it. And so it was that kind of exercise and having like an immediate reader in an almost like Dickensian serial novel type approach um, to sort of read chapters in chunks of like this story being told to like the you. And, you know, it seemed to work for Caro. And so I kind of realized, okay, this is the way forward. Um, but yeah, so it was a means of almost getting there with a few nice awards and not getting there and being told that there was something there that was beautiful, but people kind of pointing out that it was the Daniel, the narrator didn't match at the, that point in that iteration, Daniel, the character, mm. uh, which was like really for someone who did not do like an MFA or an MSc in creative writing, um, that really like blew my mind. Cause like for the longest time, I did not understand what they meant by that in terms of craft. Like how is a narrator different from his character or her character or their character? And so, yeah. Uh, it took a bit of work before landing on what I think has now probably, hopefully, become the thing that I think people that has been luminous to people, and maybe is why it's kind of getting a bit of attention. Um, but it was not like my brilliant thing from the get-go. It took a lot of struggle to get there. Yeah, I love to hear that. And then once you're agented and like flashing forward just a little bit, uh, I'm curious what was the the process like because. Um, you know, you're based in the UK, but it's coming out in America first and then the UK six months later. And usually, you know, it's like where your base kind of comes first, et cetera. And we don't need to get into the politics of it, but I'm just curious about like uh, editor's connection to it once it started going out on submission. This is such a good question and probably is uh, will illuminate why it, it landed the way it did. So, um, you know, uh, 
we spent all summer 2022 editing it, and then we went on submission that September in the UK first, because obviously I'm based here. I I, I have more of a profile in terms mm -hmm. of you know the poetry collection, and just sort of my work and advocacy within the literary sector within Scotland and the wider UK. Mm -hmm. But it was like just so slow going, and uh, you know, all very lovely feedback. Again, lyrical, poetic. This is like a brilliantly written novel. We just don't know how to place it. We don't know how to place it. So then, just be like the first week of December twenty twenty two. My agent started subbing to the U.S., and within two weeks, we got interest from Tin House, and we got the official offer the first week of 2023, and then signed the deal. Oh, so wow. all in all, it moved in like five weeks in the U.S. And I think a lot of that is to do with maybe the fact that half of the novel is set in Mexico, that it is a Latinx character. So you know, that's not to say diversity doesn't exist in the UK, but I think in terms mm -hmm. of relationships of like the wider Hispanic American Latinx American communities, um, there is like an obvious history in the U.S. due to geographical location mm -hmm. and colonialism, etc., etc., etc. Whereas, you know, there is just not that sort of deeper connection. You know, it would be more obvious here in the UK to say maybe South Asian or Caribbean or uh, the African continent um, in terms of like those kind of colonial imperialist legacies that then you have like a, a larger ethnic group that has kind of come to the colonized country, whatever, whatever. But yeah and so that was like the strange thing because then we were hoping that it would just prompt people here in the mm -hmm. uk and i'll be honest with you we did not close the deal in the uk until a bit before christmas last year okay. so what has been insane is then things move really fast um in terms of like, you know, a great honor being named here in the UK mm -hmm. as one of the observers, you know, top debuts for this year. But it was just so slow going. We were just really lucky to land with Sarah Band, who are my UK publishers, who also have deep connections in Scotland um, because they just got it. You know, Rosie, my editor at Sarah Band was just such is such a great champion. Um, but I think it is like a crazy thing in terms of maybe writers of marginalized backgrounds and with connections to possibly, you know, like the global south and, and just in certain, yeah, I guess, yeah, not to go into the politics, but yeah, yeah, yeah. what is seen as marketable and what yeah. is, you know, and, and, and when we have this huge drive both in the UK and the US for own voices or diverse voices, you know, but then we're putting sort of, um, so qualifiers of, of what gets what is sort of mass market or what the market will understand mm -hmm, instead mm -hmm. of is it a good story is it a good character is it well written um, or even to use the terrible phrase is there at least an element of universality in it um, so yeah it is that strange thing and so uh, you know I, I'm very grateful to Sarah Band but it just meant because we sold later to them that um, yeah. 
we got into the summer opening of their 2024 list. So there is that, yeah, six month uh, yeah. gap. But I just, so hopefully, you know, things work out with how it rolls out in the US sure, and sure. then people just want to buy it here. Uh, yeah, I, I'm glad you went through that. I do find it fascinating. What I also find fascinating is publishing takes a long time and both are fairly quick sale to pub date turnarounds, which is great. <laughs> yeah, I'm very lucky because I my agent is an amazing editor and Caro often sells themselves short in terms of this. But Really, I think we were lucky as a team to have really honed the craft of this novel that meant when we sold it to Tin House, I mean, I did a lot of work with Elizabeth Demio, who is my editor at Tin House, who's amazing. And we did do a lot of work. But I think what, you know, and I don't think Elizabeth will mind me saying this, was that she was really happy that when they bought the book, Tin House, you know, they bought it with the idea that there was no structural changes that need to happen. It was really just going to be finessing it and line edits. But that was because I haven't agent who is an amazing editor and i think that was then what allowed this to be a very quick turnaround yeah no that's amazing and i do i do find it yeah i'll, I'll skip what i was about to say i <laughs> i, I it, the like i said we can skip the politics and you touched upon it but it is always fascinating the market the, the market of the the business side of publishing as opposed to the art artist side of writing is mm. always an interesting dichotomy sometimes struggle sometimes fight mm -hmm. you were named one of the best 10 new novelists of 2024 from the guardian which is an amazing honor how how are you doing how how was that um how did you feel that when you learned about that it was so strange because i was having my first in-person meeting with Rosie Hilton, my uh, editor here in the UK with Saraban. And so we were meeting actually just down the street from where I live because Rosie was in town. Um, and I live near this really nice coffee shop just off of this park in Edinburgh. And anywho, so we hug each other, sit down. And the first thing Rosie tells me is this news that like my agent agreed to let Rosie be the person who shared it in person. And I just could not compute because I and I'm, I've been honest the entire time with everyone who asked this. We had literally just signed the deal not long before with Saraband. So to have made the cutoff to then even be considered and then somehow to actually make this, you know, very esteemed list of only 10 debut novelists. I don't, it is wild. And, you know, I'm not someone who does well with compliments or attention. Like, you know, it's been very lovely, this reception, but like my joke is, and I don't even know if this is true or if I'm just making this up, but I tell everyone I aspire to be Sally Rooney because I think Sally Rooney somehow is just, Sally Rooney just says these brilliant things, especially everything she has written recently about Palestine and Gaza. But like as someone who writes these brilliant books that have done well, but just doesn't seem to always be overly present or doesn't seem yeah. to have the need whereas i would love that um i think i have to earn my chops first before i get there um but in terms of 
yeah, having just this attention and, and, and even like weird things like seeing your Instagram or Twitter follower rate just jump up because this news gets announced is insane because I'm just doing trying to do me, which is not a very interesting person. You know, you had me do my personal bio at the beginning. I don't have a lot of interesting things about me. Um, I am uh, like I sometimes do like my very soft core thirst traps at the gym on my Instagram story. Mm -hmm, and that's mm -hmm. about it. And maybe I'll share like a picture of running uh, around Edinburgh. But like, I'm not this like, uh, person that I think is um, noteworthy. And maybe I'm underselling myself, but then to have this sort of put upon myself of like, you are a top 10 debut novelist, it kind of is hard to reconcile maybe outwardly how what the perception is versus sort of the per because I, I am sort of my own worst critic. Um, I, I don't think I love the story. I think it's a very well written novel. I'm so proud that it's my debut. I think the attention has just been weird is the only way yeah i can describe it definitely what was the coffee drink you were getting at the coffee shop it was an oat back? milk latte yeah i see okay. i i did i didn't sort of challenge myself uh, i think we did have pastries i'm pretty sure that rosie bought me a pan au chocolat uh which i often like to have with a coffee there we go um i'll wrap up with a few semi off the wall questions i guess okay. maybe not uh we're, we're getting to you're gonna tell me all about the books and media that you love yes but you're in, I, i'm on your instagram now scrolling through mm. it your fashion even like talking to you like <sighs> what you your 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 the, the the zoom shot is yes perfect i love yes you're, 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 so what is your current fashion obsession or lifestyle obsession? What is what is something you need in your life other than an oat milk latte? Okay, so this is like my ongoing joke with my husband. I, I love fashion. I, I love design. Um, I, do, I, I, but I'm not one to like spend huge amounts of money. My joke, not joke with my husband. So Kevin, you have to uh, honor your side of the agreement is if I were to win an award with this book that comes with say a chunky amount of money, I have like for years been wanting the Bottega Veneta cassette bag. Uh, if you don't know what that is, just Google uh, Jacob Ellerty uh, Bottega Veneta bag and you will know exactly what is the one that I want. This bag costs like a thousand dollars. It's like stupid. But like, this has been like my fashion obsession. And then my husband, Kevin, is like, what the heck would you do with it? And I would say, I would use it in the most stupid situations just to prove a point. And so I would take it to the grocery store. You know, I'm gonna, it's like, it fits, a, it's a perfect size for a book, you know? I'm gonna go to the mm -hmm. library and pick up whatever book I have on reservation. But in terms of like, just, yeah, like my dated, uh, I, did this poetry performance workshop years ago in London with the poet Anthony Anaxgaru. And I remember Anthony saying that for writers, it's really good, especially if you're shy or unconfident, to kind of develop a persona when you do literary events or perform. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so for me, the kind of dressing up at a literary event because I'm an inherently shy, shy, shy person is fashion. And because I want to, and because of what I write about, I often want to honor my Mexican heritage. So a lot of the pieces you may see on my Instagram story are things that 
um, either like sort of up and coming Mexican fashion designers that I um, obsess over and I've been able to go to Mexico uh, recently in the past few years once things opened up after the pandemic and buy things or sort of vintage Mexican items or whenever mm -hmm. my mom or my grandmother goes back to Mexico, they'll often buy me things. And so for me, it's a real brilliant way to be in communion with my heritage, especially living so far away from, you know, even not even just Mexico, but like communities within the United States that have a very rich Latinx connection, you know, like areas in California, or my parents now live in San Antonio, which has a mm. great sort of uh, 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 connection to uh, Mexican culture. Yes, I you're the outfit you're wearing in uh the 10 best new novelist piece is delectable as well uh, <laughs> your author oh i the photo you have on your website and sin house has that a uh, gray coat is to die oh, for. Yes. my vintage scottish coat oh there's this amazing if you ever come to edinburgh who's ever listening to this, you must go to Armstrong and Sons, this vintage store. There's a few of them dotted around the city. I bought that coat. It was stupidly cheap, but it is like from, I think the seventies and mm. it's like well-made Scottish wool. And so it's like, I think it's just like my obsession too of just like fashion and like when things are made and like, you know, that we should do away with fast fashion and invest in these pieces. And that is a piece that has just been well made. It's made for this country, like water just kind of falls off the wool. Like this is not sort of synthetic stuff. Um, and yes, I love that coat. I feel it kind of has like, if you were ever to see me in person walking around, kind of like opera sleeves, they mm. kind of uh, peter out. And so it's a very dramatic coat to be walking down the streets in Edinburgh over the cobblestones. Yes. Uh, I have written down Armstrong and Sons, and next time I'm over there, I will yeah. have to go. <laughs> um, what are you reading? What are you watching? What is uh, Andres enjoying? So I have just read uh, Griffin Hansberry's debut, Some Strange Music Draws Me In, which comes out in the UK with Daunt Books Publishing. I believe it comes out with W.W. Norton in the US. This book I have been obsessing with. I'm so grateful. I happen to be friends with their... Um, uh, the the publishing company's publicist, uh, Jimena, who happens to be Mexican as well. And we found each other on, on, on Twitter because there's not a lot of Mexicans living in the UK, especially working within the, the publishing sector. And so Jimena sent me this book and it has just blown my mind. It's this incredible story um, of, of a trans man who's nearing 40 and kind of reflecting on his life but writes about um, his pre-transition self. And it's kind of sort of this sense of different generations within the LGBTQIA plus community dealing with different relationships to one's queerness. And so the character often talks about how like Gen Z won't let him talk about his former self as 
a girl because then they're misgendering themselves and, 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 and he's not allowed to use his former name because he's dead naming himself. And it just creates all these interesting politics. But at its core is someone who's really reckoning with the trauma of having lost their mother and is having to kind of, they're visiting their childhood home and they are going through their mother's affairs. And whilst they're doing this, they are coming across all of these photos of their former self. It is just a beautiful novel that honestly, the last 10 pages, I was on my couch crying in uncontrollably. Um, I had recently just finished uh, Cecile Penn's Wandering Souls, which is an amazing, amazing debut novel that came out last year, um, written about um, uh, uh, the Vietnamese diaspora and specifically um, Vietnamese refugees and, and just this harrowing journey that this, uh, these three siblings take um, from Vietnam to Hong Kong to eventually resettling in, in the UK. Um, but aside from those, uh, what am I watching? I'm watching Frisk, this Australian comedy series on Netflix. Um, I am someone who, yeah, likes to read kind of heavy things and probably, it, it, I think especially with everything going on in the world, I don't like sort of dramas. I don't want to watch like a Scandi noir where someone's being like maimed. So mm -hmm. for me, if I'm gonna watch TV, it has to be funny. Um, and aside from that, I oddly have been re-watching Superstore um, because it was incredible. It was an injustice that America Ferrara never got an Emmy nomination for that. But like, you know what? I'm glad she got that Oscar nomination. Mm -hmm. I know there's like a whole discourse around it, but I love America Ferrara. And yes, she is a comedy genius. Yes. What is wildly interesting and maybe I'll chastise for me me for this is i had never watched ugly betty never watched, <gasps> never watched no. superstore oh so my america God. Ferreira as, a, as an entity has like been off even though like i was i used to write about television for a, yeah. an outlet here in america it's just wildly off my radar just for oh my two God, decades no yes now. and like i mean the greatest injustice is that America Ferrara never got an Oscar nomination for Real Women Have Curves. So like, I go back to like her like first big movie. Like we are talking like the 20 odd plus years of her career, um, a deep fan. And Ugly Betty was like, especially for me at 17, 18, just like a revelation. Like the closest I had felt to seeing a character like me on TV. Thank you so much to Andres for telling me to watch Ugly Betty and Superstore and for coming on the Debutful Podcast to discuss his debut novel, How We Name the Stars. You can find him at andresodorico.com, on Twitter at Andres and Odorico, and on Instagram at Andres underscore Odorico. You can follow me, Adam, at VitCabbage on all social media. And follow Debutiful at Debutiful.net and on all social media at Debutiful. And as always, I'm Adam, this is Day Beautiful, and you're all beautiful.